0: Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 19. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountains. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry with me, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you today, we ask through your spirit right now in this place that you would teach us and guide us to be more like you. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. On February the 12th of 1938, two men were having a private conversation, a private meeting in a mountain resort retreat. In the course of their conversation, one of the two men said to the other one, I have a historic mission to fulfill and that mission shall be fulfilled because providence, providence has destined it to be so. He went on to say that anybody who was not with him on his mission would be crushed. Of course, that man's name was Adolf Hitler. Last week, I shared with you what I hoped would be a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people and a path for you and I to follow to make a difference through prayer, primarily. I also prayed that God would bring a swift end to the conflict, preferably by putting an end to Vladimir Putin. Amen. Amen. That's uh, that's where I was, and, well, we'll talk a little about that. I mentioned to you that in Exodus 15, just a little bit before the passage for this morning, After God had delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians and all of those, uh, the, the Egyptian army had gone through the Red Sea and God swept that water back on top of them and killed them all. Then Moses and the Israelites got together. He wrote a song and all the Israelites, including Moses, sang this song to God. And uh, it describes in that song, God is a great warrior. Well, I realized this week, what I really didn't, didn't want so much was God being a great warrior for us this week. I wanted God to be a great assassin. <laughs> I wanted God to take him out. In a few conversations this week about the subject, I realized that the intervention of God on the affairs of evil men Brings up the larger question of the existence of evil in this world in the hands of a sovereign God. That is, in my mind at least, I found myself wondering why God allows Vladimir Putin to exist at all. I find myself in my mind thinking if God is sovereign, that he's in control of all things and all time, he's in control of history. Why didn't God come down at that mountain retreat in 1938 and simply take out Adolf Hitler and none of the Holocaust, I'm assuming, would have happened? We ask ourselves this question, why doesn't God do such and such? What I'm really saying and what we're really saying is, why doesn't God do it a little more the way I would do it if I were God? So today's message <clears throat> is entitled, A Good God In a bad world, a good God in a bad world. The question of evil. Perhaps the most asked question among believers and non-believers today uh, alike is, why does God allow evil in the world? And often that question begins, the question of why does God allow evil in the world? The question usually begins with the phrase, if God is good, then why does he allow evil in the world? So when you ask the question or somebody asks the question, if God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? We're not really questioning the evil in the world. What are we questioning? We're questioning the goodness of God. And that's really the question that many people ask. They're not so much concerned about evil in the world as they are if God is God, if he is good, if he is sovereign then why does he allow this if he's a good God? Again, the goodness of God in our minds is contingent upon whether or not he does what we think he ought to do. And if he doesn't do the things that we think he ought to do in the way we think he ought to do them and in the timing we think he ought to uh, do it, then we question whether or not he's really good. Um, and therefore, because if God is sovereign and he can stop evil men and he chooses not to, doesn't that make him somehow responsible for the destruction that evil men cause? And we may not say that, but that's ultimately what we're bringing to mind when we question the goodness of God. Only a short time after Moses and the Israelites were singing songs about the greatness of of God. That is, God brought them through and they wrote that song. They sing that song and they're celebrating. Then Moses goes up on the mountain a short time later and comes back 40 days after that with the Ten Commandments, the law of God in his hands. Doesn't last very long. He comes down and sees the people and he takes those Ten Commandments, and he throws them and dashes them against the ground, destroying them. And he did that because he was so horrified by what he saw. He came down and he saw that the Israelites, the people of God, having a sin contest with each other to see who commit the greatest sins, apparently, they were unrestrained in their sinning. And so Moses goes to Aaron, who was left in charge, and he gives him that, or asks him that amazing question, that famous question. Uh, What did these people do to you? How did they manage to trick you or entice you or threaten you into allowing them to do this? And he responds this way. Don't be angry, he says. You know how prone these people are to evil. Now, on the one point, he, he makes clear to Moses, I understand exactly how you feel, Moses. And Moses did understand exactly how Aaron felt. Because Moses had been scratching his head for a long time as to uh, why the Israelites were so prone to sin so prone to evil time and time again. And in fact, in the future, he's going to become increasingly frustrated to the point that he's gonna strike a rock rather than tapping it because he's mad. And so I think Aaron is trying to appeal to Moses and, and connect with him. Uh, of course, he's just trying to distract him from the real issue, but he's basically saying, Moses, you know how awful these people were, are. You've had to deal with it. Now I had to deal with it. This is the result. And here's what he says. You know how prone these people are to evil. Now, these people is a reference to the Israelites. Everybody there except Aaron and Moses. So Aaron does not put himself in the category. He doesn't say, Moses, we're all sinners in the hands of God. He doesn't doesn't say that. Is Aaron a sinner? Oh, yeah. Aaron allowed it. Who made the calf? Aaron made the calf. He's the worst one. But he doesn't put himself in that category with all those people, all of those evil people. You know how evil they are, Moses. So that's what he means, prone to evil. I think maybe the first question we should ask is, "What is evil?" You would think that would go without, without saying that we all know what evil is, but we don't. I can see the news and know that uh, that we live in a world and in a country that does not really know what evil is, because what is evil is often celebrated as good, and that which is good is often condemned as evil. And so, what is evil? And we may ask, or some may argue, if God made everything, then he had to have made evil as well. Why would he do that? It was the great theologian, uh, Augustine, who wrote on the subject, this very subject. And he defined evil, interestingly, not as a thing in and of itself, but as a parasite on good. That's an interesting concept. He described evil not as something, but as the lack of something. That is, something that is lacking is not a thing in and of itself. For example, if you have a hole in your pocket, the hole is not something, it's the lack of something, it's the lack of material that makes a pocket. There's, there's, oh my goodness. There's something lacking in your pocket. There's a big hole in your pocket. And so the hole is not something, but rather the lack of something, something that is missing. So Augustine considered evil something that is missing. Consequently, as he defined evil, not as something, but a lack of something. Um, What is that something? It's the lack of something. Evil is the lack of something. What is the, the something? The something is the goodness of God and evil is simply the the lacking of the goodness of God. God is good. That is, God is the very definition of good. Good is God. God is good, and anything that is outside the goodness of God is evil. It is the absence of God's goodness. Whatever is left automatically is evil. Therefore, if evil is not something, but rather the lack of something, Augustine argued that God did not create it and could not be the author of evil. God is the author of good, but we make moral choices devoid of God's goodness that result in evil. That said, Why does God allow evil is often not the real question that we are asking. Most of us are really asking, why does God allow the consequences of evil? You see, I would suggest that we don't really care that much about Vladimir Putin, whether he's an evil man or not, because there are evil men all over the world. What we care about are the consequences of him being evil. That is the people, innocent men, women, and children that are dying every day because of his evil deeds. We care about those consequences because we care about people. But we don't really concern ourselves so much with Vladimir Putin himself. He's always been that way. Who cares until people start dying? So we're concerned about the consequences of evil behavior, those things that are done that result in are the result of evil. So why does God allow consequences of evil? Of course, the short answer is, God wants us to make a choice. He wants us to choose him. Now, you understand that God had the opportunity to make us without choice or to make us with choice. Those are the options. If He made us without choice, that is, we worship Him and we glorify Him, we're like the cherubim or the seraphim in heaven, that they just do what they are told to do, then we have no opportunity to choose Him. He wanted us to choose Him. In order for us to choose Him, voluntarily choose to glorify God, to follow God, to worship God, to love God, in order for us to choose to do that, He had to give us choice. And choice means we can do the goodness of God or we can do not the goodness of God. And therefore, there is evil. We cannot choose unless there is a choice. If we couldn't choose, we might as well just be robots. I mean, literally, biological robots that God just tells us what to do and we do it. We don't question it, we don't think about it. But God doesn't want us to be robots. (laughs) didn't design us to be robots. God's not a robot. We're designed in his image. And so he gave us choice. And we cannot choose unless there's choice. Sherry and I are having a little house built. I, I've not mentioned it publicly to you, but uh, most of you already know. And this week, my builder sent me to an appliance store that he uses to pick out a microwave oven. Now, I went to the appliance store, and, and they had uh, beautiful microwave ovens there. We It's a built-in thing, what they call a built-in microwave. And I saw one, it was $1,699, $1,700, they're real pretty. And uh, some of them were $800, you know, the built-ins tend to be a little bit more pricey. And, and my builder told me there was only one stipulation because we need the microwave like monday tomorrow immediately so he he said it has to be one that's in stock that's the only thing so i go to the store and i said oh i like this one i like this one these are beautiful and they said well we don't have those i said well um um what do you have in stock my builder told me i could pick anything you had in stock and so he took me back there and he said this one is in stock so they, they had one in stock. It was a Whirlpool. Did you know Whirlpool makes microwaves? I told somebody I'm gonna throw my clothes in there and see if I wash them. It was $275. So uh, you can guess what kind of microwave you're gonna get at $275. And, uh, but that was the only one they had. It was the Whirlpool or the Whirlpool. Those were my options. So I didn't really have any choice at all. Well, so when my builder said, you can pick any one you want, as long as it's the whirlpool, that's not really a choice. And if God says to you and I, I'm going to give you a choice, you can do anything you want, as long as the choice is the right choice, the perfect choice, the good choice, not the bad choice. That's not a choice at all. Um, And so therein lies the dilemma. So in order for us to be able to choose God, to choose good, There has to be an alternative to good, and that would be that which is not good, which of course is the definition of evil. Which brings us back to the Israelites and to us. Aaron said to Moses, you know how prone these people are to evil. Well, we're prone to. That is, our tendency is to make bad choices. If you look with me in Matthew chapter 7, this is during the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give you three verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, so you might want to turn there with me if you would. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. This is during the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is speaking about the wonderful provision of God. So that's the topic. God provides. He's going to take care of you. He loves you, and he's going to provide for you. In the middle of that, he gives them illustrations. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, he says... Which of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That's a beautiful statement. And he says a lot right there in just that single statement. First of all, here's his (laughs) illustration. He says... Parents, if you got bread, would you give your child a rock instead? Would you not give him the bread because you care about your child? You want to take care of your child, of course. If you, if you, if, you, if he's hungry, your child is hungry. Would you not give him a fish instead of a snake because the fish is better than the snake? I'm told. Apparently, he says. He says, how much more is God going to give you if you ask? You notice there's the condition you have to ask. I think sometimes we think of prayer as something we came up with. We're throwing it out there hoping that God hears us, hoping he's not annoyed. Because we annoy each other with our requests. And I think sometimes we think that God gets annoyed. He gets tired of hearing us. Uh, because we keep shouting out after him. But in fact, prayer isn't our invention, it's God's invention. It's his desire, his intention for us to cry out to him, to ask. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. God time and again tells us to ask. And so he says, here God is, he is a loving God, and he wants to give you what's good. Of course he wants to give you. God right now this morning, every one of you, God wants to give you what's good. He wants to provide for you. He wants to do that. If you ask. But you have to ask. Now in the middle, there's this interesting phrase. Did you catch it? When he's given the illustration to those disciples that are there and the thousands on that hillside with the Sea of Galilee in the backdrop and and he's he's sharing this message he's talking to them as much as he's talking to you and I today and he says you you provide for your children do you not and if you'll do that and here's what he actually says if you then though you are what's the word evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, this is extraordinary. I doubt that anybody has ever used that term to the Israelites or to the Jews before. See, in the mind of the Jews, they weren't the evil one. Who were evil? The Gentiles. And in their case, in their in their nation, specifically the Romans, because the Romans were there and they had taken control of the, they had seized the country. They did what Putin is trying to do in Ukraine. They took it over. And so now the Israelis, uh, the the Jews, have to put up with the Roman soldiers. So they're good, and the Romans are evil, and that's their thinking. But Jesus isn't talking about Romans here. He's not talking to Romans. He's talking to the Jews. And he says, you give these gifts to your children, and you guys are evil. I, I, I assure you, that was a shocking moment for them. In the early service this morning... I baptized uh, a new member of the church, a dear sweet lady. And I, I told her before the baptism, just before the baptism, as the first song was playing, I said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I want you to know our, our baptistry heats the water so it's nice and warm for you. I said, the bad news is it didn't work this time. <laughs> <clears throat> and so the water was, I think, pumped right out of a glacier in Alaska. It's about 31.1 degrees. I said, the good news is when I bring you up out of the water, you're going to feel very refreshed and alive. Because <laughs> it was a shocking jolt. Well, that's what this was. It was a shock to them when they sat out there. And I assure you they turned to each other and said, what, what did he say? Did he say we're evil? And they started looking around for Romans. Yeah, Jesus says, you're Evil. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what an amazing thing to say. So yes, we're evil. Now, granted, some of us are more evil than others. So when we ask the question, by the way, yeah, the the really evil ones are other people. The less evil are us. How We always see that. So when we ask the question, why does God allow evil in the world? What we're really asking is, why does God allow evil people that are more evil than us? (laughs) That's really what we're asking. When I was a kid, I would occasionally tattle on one of my four brothers and sisters because they were pretty bad. They were frequently making a big mess or destroying something. And they would protest to mom And you know what they would say? They would say, well, Lee was doing it too. Because I was doing it too. (laughs) And I would reply, well, yeah, but they did it first. As if to say, you shouldn't punish me because I did it, but they did it first. So they're more evil than me and only the really evil should be punished. Punished. So we haven't changed a bit. I haven't changed a bit, apparently, either. So I want to say this. How should we respond to evil in the world? Well, we find the answer in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. If you'll look there with me. Matthew 5, 38. Again, the words of Christ as he's preaching that day to the disciples and the multitudes. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist a, what? An evil person. Now he's on track because he says this, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I didn't put it up there, but he goes on to say, if somebody takes your uh, cloak, take, give him in your tunic as well. And if somebody makes you go a mile, go two miles. Well, they had these rules because they were occupied by the Romans that the Romans had a certain rights Uh, And authority over them. And so, if a Roman needed the cloak of somebody, they had to give it up. And if he had stuff to carry, that he could make them carry it, but only for one mile, only for a certain distance, and then they could drop it. He'd find somebody else to make them carry it. Here, Jesus is saying, I tell you what, I want you to carry it an extra mile. If they take your cloak, give them your tunic as well. And again, these are shocking, earth-shattering statements. But the first one is really what gets me. He said that if, if they strike you on one cheek, if they slap you in the face on the right cheek, I tell you what I want you to do, turn and give him your left cheek as well. Which, by the way, what is the alternative if somebody strikes you on the right cheek? you strike them back on their right cheek, amen. Praise God, eye for an eye. We are all suddenly Old Testament people, are we not? Amen. This week, I conducted a wedding uh, 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 renewal of the vows for one of the couples in our church. It was their anniversary, it was beautiful. The event center was down in Burleson, and it was actually at a country club, and so it was surrounded by a golf course. And so after the service was over, and it went really well, I uh, had the privilege to get to stay there and have some fajitas. They had a they had a full uh, um, buffet there, which as a preacher, it's my God-given responsibility to eat. And so I didn't want to be rude, you know. And so, but I had my Bible in my hand, and I, I thought, you know, because because I'm not as mindful as I used to be, if I ever was. I'm gonna set this Bible down so I can eat my fajitas and I will never think about it again until I'm long gone because that's down in Bursa a long way. So I thought, knowing me, I better take this to the car right now, which I did. Took it out, put it in the car. On my way back in, <clears throat> again, there were golfers coming and going because there's a golf course there. And on my way back in, I'm crossing the, the parking lot And a golfer comes right beside me and cuts right in front of me. He almost hit me. He didn't say apologies or, hey, to your left or any kind of warning. He just plowed right in front of me. He literally missed me by an inch or two. And he just plowed right off. Let me tell you, when that happened, uh, Jesus left my heart. (laughs) I know he left because I kicked him out. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't leave because later on he, he talked to me. But as he did that, uh, I just remember thinking bad things about that guy. And to be fair to me, if there is any fairness to me, I, I play golf from time to time. I'm a terrible golfer, but I do enjoy playing golf. And I play with some of the members of the church sometimes. And we have a good time. But I've learned over the years that on the golf course, you really have two kinds of golfers out there. Um, The easy going kind and the other kind. (laughs) The other kind tends to have a little money in the bank. They're members of the club. They are way too uptight. And they take golf way too seriously. They think the PGA or whoever is going to call them any moment and invite them. On the course, they think that anyone is, that is not in their group is frankly unworthy to be there and should always get out of their way. If you once knew a kid that was a big jerk and wonder whatever happened to him as he got older, he's probably on the golf course. <laughs> well, that's the guy that nearly ran me over. And you know what I did? Um, I followed him around the building. Now, I was still a distance from him. Now, I didn't say anything, and I didn't do anything. But in my heart and in my mind, I taught him a lesson he'll never forget. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly the love of God exits our heart, and evil swoops right in. You see, Jesus would say the problem of evil in the world isn't in the Kremlin. It's right here. We are so interested in God providing justice everywhere, all the time, except right here. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Same sermon. He said, but I tell you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Let me stop right there. I can't begin to tell you how uh, much I messed up already. (laughs) Jesus says, you've heard heard what to do. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, demand justice. But I'm going to tell you something shocking. Shocking. And this was shocking as well. I mean, just absolutely earth-shattering, shocking. He said, I'll give you another strategy. Love your enemies. Last week, when I was calling down fire on uh, Putin, at no point in the sermon did I say or suggest that you should love him or pray for his salvation, that God would be glorified and his heart would change. I'm not interested in his heart changing. I just want to get rid of him. Now, if God wants to get rid of him, he'd get rid of him before the sermon is over. And I'm okay with that. But that's not my part. That's God's part. My part is difficult. Your part is difficult. And Jesus never suggested this was going to be easy. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. It's hard to hate him and love him at the same time. And then he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Of course, the ones that were persecuting them were the Romans. So he says, I tell you what, I want you to love the Romans. Again, I promise they've never heard that in their life. And they probably sat there and just stunned disbelief. What? Does he know the meaning of that word love? Apparently, we have a difference of definition of what that means. Surely, he doesn't imply that I should love them. I mean, love, love. Yes, that's what he's saying. It's not implying it. He's commanding it clearly. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I would like to add to what I said last week to Vladimir Putin or anybody else that's on your hate list love them. Pray for them. You know, I would love to see God glorified through the radical change in the hearts of the Russian leadership and the Russian people and the Russian army. God's in the transforming business. What a glorious day that that would be. Pray for him. Then he says this in the last sentence. Did you catch it? He causes, that is God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And clearly that is so wrong. That's not what I would do at all. That's not what you would do either. We would send rain and cause the sun to rise on the good people, but the bad people would miss out. But that's not how it works. Sometimes and often the bad people, evil people have a good in life. Well, boo-hoo, get over it. Because God chooses what he chooses and that is up to God. Now for Adolf Hitler, if I can go back to him as we close this morning, has God brought justice to Adolf Hitler? Yes, of course. So this ideal in our mind that, because God didn't bring justice to Adolf Hitler when he was in that mountain retreat in 1938, that that there is no justice for him. He got away with it. Nope, he didn't get away with it. God has God's way and his timing and he will take care of Putin and Hitler or anybody else. He'll take care of you too and me too were it not for the mercy of God through Christ. The mother of four young boys often had difficulty curbing their energy, especially in church. But when the pastor that Sunday preached on turning the other cheek, the boys gave him their undivided attention. No matter what others do to us, the pastor said, we should never try to get even. The boys heard that. He said, you should turn the other cheek. Don't try to get even. Let God take care of it. Don't retaliate. That afternoon, the youngest boy came into his mom crying. Because he said, his, she said, why are you crying? He said, my, my brother hit me. And uh, I hit him and he hit me back. And she said, well, if you don't want him to hit you back, you probably shouldn't hit him. He said, but the preacher said he's not supposed to hit me back. (laughs) See, he's concerned about what his brother's doing and not what he's doing. And we are that way, are we not? You know, Romans 3.23 says, where we have all sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. We've all allowed evil into our life and into our heart. And Romans 6.23 tells us the result of that sin is death. That's our sentence. Not God's fault. That's our fault. That's our doing. That's justice. That we die in our sins. You also know that Romans 5.8 says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He paid that penalty of death for you and I on the cross to give us not what we deserve, but to give us mercy. I'm so thankful for that. Are you today? So as we go out this morning, we think about good and evil in the world and our desire for choice, but we want to remove that choice from others. Remember, there is a purpose to all of this. Well, I can't do anything about what happens in Russia other than pray and love. I can do something about this right here. And this is where the problem lies. This is where the challenge is. And this is why God has given me choice because he wants this for me and for you. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to say thank you for The great privilege of allowing us to choose you. And by doing so, it came at a great price, a great cost. By allowing us to choose, we have to be able to choose wrong or it's not a choice. We have to be able to choose evil or it's not a choice. It's just an illusion. But you genuinely give us choice because you desire us to choose you, not by force, not by control or manipulation, but by choice. Father, there is evil in our life and in our hearts. I pray right now, we choose you. In the name of Jesus, would you purge that evil from our life? That anger that we have, that bitterness, that hatred, and replace it with love. Would you take the anger that we're having, whether it's against the Russian leaders or against our neighbor or somebody in our family or whoever it may be, the anger that's in our heart right now, we're angry about someone, in the name of Jesus Christ, would you replace it with his peace and his joy? If we're bitter or unforgiving, I pray today, Father, in the name of Jesus and through his blood that you will allow us to forgive, to release it to you. and replace it with the hope that we find in Jesus. Can I pray for you today? Can I challenge you this morning that collectively we pray for our enemies and love them and pray that God will bring revival in hearts? Not fearing and not worrying that justice is going to take place. God will take care of that. He is the judge. That's already done. That's already taken care of. We're not to worry about we can ask for mercy and transformation through Christ for ourselves but also for others would you be willing to do that everyone that Jesus called he called publicly he said to everyone if you confess me before others I will confess you before my father in heaven so God is waiting Christ is waiting for you to come and say you know what I let go of my anger. I let go of my hate, and I replace it because I choose Jesus Christ. I choose Christ. Would you do that today? Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. Maybe you've never been baptized. You want to become a candidate for baptism? Just say down. Just come down and say, Pastor, I would like to. I would like to be a candidate for baptism. That's all you have to say. We'll talk. Or maybe God is leading you or your family to join with his fellowship and you want to come down and say we would like to serve God here God is leading right now this is your opportunity no one's looking around would you stand all heads are bowed all eyes are closed and as we pray right now